a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. So my guest today on Pine Time is Wyatt Roy. Wyatt Roy, or Boy Wonder, <laughs> as he was always called, or the... They used to call you Boy Wonder, I think, didn't they? Yeah, but I, I, you know, that was okay when I was 25. Yeah, sure. It started to wear off by the time <laughs> I got to 50. <laughs> <laughs> Although I kept using the moniker. I have such youthful exuberance. I still do. So Wyatt Roy, for those people who don't remember, is the youngest MP ever elected to the Australian Parliament. In fact, any parliament in Australia. Mm-hmm. There was a young man in about 1914, I think, who was about 21 or Something like 22. That, yeah. And then there was Andrew Jones, who yep. was 21, from Adelaide mm-hmm. in the 1960s. But Wyatt Roy was elected to the House of Representatives at the age of 20 and is now the general manager of Affinity Australia, which is an artificial intelligence company. He's going to tell us all about that later. And interested in innovation and, and the modern world. Just like you. <laughs> Just like me. Yes, well, when Malcolm made me the Minister for Industry, Innovation and Science... I really kind of felt I should explain to him that I wasn't very good at things like innovation. That's <laughs> <laughs> my thing. But fortunately, the brief was to do the National Innovation and Science Agenda, and you you became the first ever Minister for Innovation right. in my portfolio. That's right. You were my boss. I was. As so many people like to remind me. Do they? <laughs> my dad particularly. Why? He loves you. Oh, yes. he, uh, bless I him. I, I wonder whether you ever remember this. We were sitting in your office one day. My dad, you know, I come from a farm in Queensland. Yeah, he's the strawberry farmer. Strawberry farmer, right? So dad's, you know, not particularly political. And he was in my office for a drink or something, wasn't he? One time, yeah. 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 Voted for the Labor Party forever. Anyway, he calls up and he says, um, I said, oh, you know, I'm just with Christopher, but, you know, I'll have a chat. And I don't, you probably don't remember this. I, he wanted to talk to you. Good. And put him on the phone and uh, you start having a chat and then you hand it back and he says, do you ever think you could get a job working for Christopher? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, Dad? And I said, well, he says, well, he's just, you know, so good and so oppressive. Wouldn't it be great to go work oh. for him? And I was like, well, I kind of have a job. I'm quite happy with my job. So You work for the people. I did work for the people, just like you. Well, that's very nice. What a nice thing to say. Well, that's nice, yeah. And a nice way to start this lovely <laughs> podcast. Exactly. So that's why you were so successful at such a young age. Well, because I learned from such great people like you. That lovely charm. Mm. So getting elected at 20, Wyatt, was that like the craziest thing in the whole world? Yeah, I think so. I think there's, no, <laughs> there's no way of kind of like sugarcoating that. It's very um, it, it's very different for so many reasons. But, um, you, you know, and you must have had this experience going in as, at a young age. But I was I, 25. Yeah. I was an old man by the time I was 25. But I, I was definitely... It was definitely very significant, not just because I was young, but I was the youngest, and I was mm. very conscious. I didn't want to be typecast as the youngest MP. No. You know, you wanted to be the best, and you know, I focused on policy. But um, it was a um, yeah, it's a very 
out-of-body type experience those first sort of few days. And I remember it was, you know, maybe six months after I was elected before it really hits you because you are just running on adrenaline for so long. Totally. But yeah. what, what motivated a 19-year-old to seek pre-selection for your seat? Was that, that was Longman, right? Longman, yeah. yeah. It was unexpected, I think. Difficult seat, Longman. Difficult seat, important seat. But I think um, much like Sturt in many ways, I suppose. But, uh, Except mine was safe. You were much seat. more successful at holding it there <laughs> than some of us. But, at uh, times. At times. But I think um, it, it was unexpected that I would go into politics for a bunch of reasons, not just because of my age. So... I'm the first person in my family to finish high school, including two older brothers who, you know, I love dealing. They've done other things in their life. My family traditionally votes for the Labor Party. So, you know, the idea that I was going to be a young liberal politician was very far away from, you know, what we expected. But uh, two things really happened. Uh, I was pretty good at economics. That was my sort of passion. And I was helping out a mate of mine who ended up in a wheelchair. Oh. And uh, my economics lecturer said, you understand economics, but you also understand social justice. It's a bit of a cliche, but if you put the two together, you can make a difference and you should get involved in politics. When you were, what, 19? Yeah, well, at that time I would have been 18 or right. seven, you know, some, maybe even 17. So Mary convinced me to, um, uh, to get involved in politics and I, I did from a policy point of view, started volunteering, started getting involved, and I realised that you can make a difference. I mean, everyone, I think everyone focuses on how bad politics is, but you know, we should talk about how good politics can be and how it is a force for changing the world for the better. And got involved in the party, an opportunity came up to run. People suggested that I should run for the pre-selection, so not bizarre. necessarily <laughs> thinking that I would win. That's right. But, um, you know, it was a great experience for later on. And I thought about it and I thought, well, I actually think I can win. I've got nothing to lose. In Queensland, in the LNP, it's a grassroots pre-selection. Overwhelmingly won what was a, a competitive pre-selection, and um, it was very hard to get rid of me after that. Mm, they tried. They did. They did try and get rid of you. They did. <laughs> the, I remember the LNP trying to get rid well, of you. Well, lots of our friends and colleagues did, but but I think it's a great thing for the party that uh, you know we on our side of politics were um, prepared to support someone of that age and, and bring diversity into the parliament. I don't know if I've ever told you this. I probably have, but one of my one of our very senior colleagues. Yes told me to call you and tell I remember. you to pull out. Yeah. I remember the call. <laughs> as, as, as there was a litany of very senior colleagues who did that, but then there was a litany of very senior colleagues who said, no, this is a good thing and it's uh, good for the party and it's good for the parliament. And, and that was always my experience. And you have to have a bit of a baptism of fire when you go into politics. But that's true for everybody. But do you regret it now? Do you think it was all too definitely early? Not. No, definitely not. I think, um, you know, I don't think the parliament should be full of young people and I don't think the parliament should be full of professional politicians. But I do think that diversity, I mean, ultimately the parliament should represent the Australian people. That is when it's most successful. And a few young people bring that perspective, that energy, uh, and I think they also bring a long-term perspective because if you're making decisions about the future of the country, uh, self-interest is a powerful motivator. Young people are still going to be around when you feel the impacts of those decisions. And I think, you know, a handful of people who are uh, not a white male aged over 55 is probably a good thing for the parliament and whatever reason we tend to have that more often than not. So I think, you know, that change is good. And for me, it was a incredible experience. It was a big part of my life. Uh, really sure. proud of what we did. And, you know, I think life goes on. I regret going into politics when I was 25. Yeah. I think... Why? I, because at the time I thought I would be able to make a contribution and I knew mm. heaps of stuff. And then, of course, looking back, I realised at 25 I didn't really know anything at all. Yeah. All I knew was how to win a pre-selection and get elected. <laughs> I, you, you know, here's a fun story. The, the first pre-selection I ever went to was my own. Right. 
So, you know, I was certainly never like that. For, I don't know whether you remember on my... I was um, like a, uh, you know, a, a well-trained greyhound yeah. by the time I was running. For, <laughs> well, and you know, <laughs> I, I love you, Christopher, and I've learned a lot from you, but I think we did always take a very different approach to some of this hardcore political stuff. And I think, um, do, do you remember on my, you probably don't remember this, on my 21st birthday, we had a little party in Parliament House, mm-hmm. which... um was the first time there was ever a 21st in Parliament. <laughs> of course it was. And we, had to, and we had to have this party in Parliament because the media were so interested in it. So for right. me to have a normal 21st somewhere else, we had to, you know, send them over here. Yeah. And Tony Abbott got up and gave, you know, a birthday speech. And he said, uh, you know, you're the next Christopher Pine, but oh, uh, you take quite a different approach to him to politics. And I wasn't ever sure if that was a compliment or not. But I think, um, you know, I was never kind of interested in the internal party politics for me. It was always kind of something else. So I think that probably was a good grounding because internal party politics can be so exhausting, right? Oh, yes, and time-consuming. Time-consuming, so. But you did get involved in the internal party politics. Sure, of course. As I have revealed, as I've named you in my book. <laughs> it's a well-read book. <laughs> it's very, well, it's it sold is. very well. It has. I saw it in a bookshop sitting above Malcolm's biography the other day. I sent Malcolm a photograph of uh, his and my book in a bookshop in Queensland <laughs> where my book was under recommended reading ah. and his wasn't. <clears throat> they were was... next to each other, but mine had a little yellow tag that said recommended. Oh, they go. Were you moving around the books <laughs> in the bookshop too a little Sometimes bit? Sometimes Malcolm doesn't have a great sense of humour when he's being teased. Uh. I do adore Malcolm, of course, and we both do, but he, he didn't think that was very funny. I thought it was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so my book sold about 14,000 copies now. That's good. That is a lot. That's a lot for a politician. Sure. For non-fiction. Yeah, yeah definitely. Bestseller non-fiction is about 4,000 copies. Mm. So I'm very pleased And how many that. copies did Caroline buy of those 14,000? <laughs> I don't think she bought I think she hasn't even read it. <laughs> she might have read it. I, don't, I think she probably hasn't. She likes to keep me in my place, Wyatt. Yes. I like your first book, The Letter to Your Children. I think that's a very special. Thank you. That oh, sold nice. about 4,000. Yeah, but I think that's more, that's more sentimental, surely, than the... It was an interest. It's very different to my second yeah. book. A letter to my children. Yeah. When people come on this podcast, do they always spend the entire time talking about you or do we no, talk about no, other people? No, we let them talk about themselves for Good. 20% Good. of the time. Good. More than Alan Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Jones. Did Alan Jones, he would have liked you though. No, he hated me. Liked you at the start? Yes. And then hated you because yeah. you supported Malcolm? Correct. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so I did regret going into politics at 25 and if I had my <laughs> time again, I wouldn't have mm. done that. But then on the other hand, as you point out, You've got to take the flood as it presents itself. Right? Absolutely. You can't sort of think, I'll do that. A lot of people do. They think, oh, I've got this plan yeah. for my political career. And you listen to them thinking, that's never going to happen. No, I often find <laughs> people say the timing is not right. Well, yeah. the thing about politics is governed by opportunity, not exactly. by timing. You totally. Can't, you can't say this is the right time or not. And I think there's a lot of very good people who should be in the parliament who are not for exactly that reason. Yeah, it's a pity. Yeah. But so you must have been an absolute shock to you getting to Canberra in the 43rd Parliament, 2010, you're 20 years old. Yeah. It was like the worst Parliament I was ever in. Yeah. I was in nine of them and that was easily the worst. Yeah. You must have wondered what on earth is this planet? It, w- it was an extremely intense experience that you, you cannot really describe accurately to anyone because it's so different to anything that's normal for a human being. Mm. But, you know, as I was saying before, you, you do run on adrenaline for so long that you're just so focused on doing a good job, you don't actually really start to think about how weird it is until much later on. And, you know, I remember, like, it's true. my first few days in Parliament, like, because of the novelty and, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of 
other stuff out there at the time that, you know, had lots of sort of media exposure and people following me around. And there's a moment where I thought this is getting really, really weird where I <laughs> was having a coffee with Jane Prentice. You remember our friend yes, Jane? Yes, of course. Remember uh, for Ryan? Remember for Ryan? Not not the youngest member of the parliament, I would say, but lovely no, lady. And, and Jane... Very well preserved. Very well. Thank <laughs> you. Sure, she'd love that compliment. Anyway, <laughs> Jane, Jane had just bought an iPad, which was relatively Goodness, new back in, two, back in 2010. And Jane was showing once. me her iPad and we're having a coffee and I'm playing with it. And uh, there was a news story like in Fairfax the next day about how youngest MP has an iPad and this oh, is all no. amazing. And I remember thinking, okay, this is where it's getting a little bit a little bit out of hand, a little bit weird. But um, I had an iPad once. Did you? I never turned it on. Oh, taxpayers pay for that iPad. <laughs> They gave it to me. The defense. They gave it to one of the government departments. Gave it to me and said, "This is your iPad, Minister, mm. and you're going to be sent all of your cabinet documents on this iPad. Mm. And so you need to put your password in, and this is it, and it's all very secure." Yeah. And I gave it to my um, one of my advisors and said, "This is the iPad with all the cabinet documents <laughs> on it, and uh, I don't intend to use it at all. Yeah. Um, so just you know, go to the website that is provided to us and print off the documents and get, put them in a." with a two-hole punch for me and I'll <laughs> take them into the cabinet and read them beforehand, et cetera. Do you know one of the weirdest things was the um, for the ministers, they had those secure fax machines? Yes. And, you know, like in 2016, we were still getting secure faxes of ministerial meeting. Uh, really? You know, you know, docs, yeah, absolutely. Because I remember if you were travelling too, if they were secure, you had to go somewhere that had this fax machine that was secure so that you could oh, get there. Right. It was very strange. But we also had on our desks... Those um, telephone and uh, that were in the television. Ah, yes, yeah. Telephones that were in the television, whatever that's called. (laughs) And um, (laughs) they were never used. I don't think I ever used mine once. I did. I used to use it all the time. Who were you calling? I rang John Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Your friend. When, before I was a cabinet minister, though, when he was, when I was the minister for ageing and I was installed. Yeah. Right at the end. The golden age of the Howard era. I was um, sitting there at my desk thinking, I wonder how that, Television thing works and <laughs> seems to be have a phone numbers on them and I sort of print, put it in Prime Minister's number and it rang. <laughs> and then he popped up on the screen and said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I just thought I'd see if it works. <laughs> he said, people don't use these unless there's an emergency. Oh, I said, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> we hung up and I thought, goodness, that was exciting. <laughs> that was exciting. It was the highlight of his day. Because he probably thought there must be an emergency if I'm being called on that screen. On the bat phone. I used to use it quite a lot. The bat phone we used mm. to I used to use it quite a lot to disturb my cabinet colleagues when I wanted to tease them about something. So um, the weirdness of Canberra, getting there at 20, mm-hmm. I think you handled yourself very well, though, by the way. Thank you. Well, you know, you were talking before about some of the younger MPs and they, they frankly don't have a good history, a lot of them. No, you know, and they don't. sort of either went to their head or they, you know, got you know, dealt with the stress or whatever in difficult and unhelpful ways and all sort of ended in tears. And I was very conscious that I wanted to maintain, you know, a connection to the real world and, you know, my my best mates are all not political and not interested. So I was very focused on just sort of trying to stay as grounded as possible because I was acutely aware of how weird it is and how strange it is. And everybody was waiting for you to fall over, of course. Yeah, I used to say I was walking a a high, you know, high rope and everyone's waiting to see if you fall. And uh, I think, being conscious of that probably did help because I then realised, you know, to be successful in politics, I think the real thing is you have to be comfortable in your own skin. Mm. You know, if you look at, and particularly in Australia, right, people can spot authenticity and they know when people are not. 
and you you would know this better than anybody else. I mean, I think the reason so many people love you is because you're so comfortable in who you are. <laughs> uh, and as is true for many of our great successes and our great friends. And, and I think I knew when people elected me at 20, they didn't elect me because they wanted me to sound and look and act like other politicians. It mm. was because they wanted something different. So I think if you're... That's definitely true. Yeah. And I think if you're comfortable in your own skin and, you know, you own your mistakes and you know that you're going to make them, it's just a completely different mindset to what's, what would be a very easy environment for it all to go to your head. Well, in politics, there's always going to be bad days. Exactly. And if you think it's all going to be beer and Skittles and when it doesn't turn out that way, you basically fall apart. I mean, yeah. I've seen it happen. Yeah, literally. And uh, if you think, I know it's gonna, there's going to be bad days, and the way to deal with that is just to sort of ride through them and look happy and wave at the crowd and keep moving, <laughs> waving and smiling, waving and smiling, not drowning, then uh, you can survive those bad days. I mean, I had bad days. Yeah. And, and again, if you are yourself and you're upfront and you're honest through those bad days, I think people respect that. And why That's not? Right. Well, I apologise for that black hand speech, for example. <laughs> That almost got you, but, uh, but almost I, did get almost me. took you down. But but I, but I think uh, so many people would have been so happy. But, I know, uh, and that was driving me to survive too. <laughs> by the way, exactly. But but you know, I do kind of feel that you know, in those really bad moments when the electorate really gets to know you, and of course, your own electorate does get to know you quite well, they would come out and defend you totally because they'd be you know. That's not like you because know, they have an ownership of you. Exactly. That's not our Wyatt or our Christopher, yeah. and he's not really like the way that they talk. He's about our him. member. He's our member. So I think again, that kind of helps with the the right approach. To so, this. when because you were twenty though, didn't you have FOMO? You know what FOMO yes, of is, course. don't you? Thank, thank, thanks for keep, keeping me up with the lingo the kids are using nowadays, Christopher. Absolutely. I'm more interested who taught you what that means. Uh, for all, it's, it's one of my new words. I only it? heard it recently. I was so excited about it. The thesaurus of Christopher. Somebody said to me, you know, did you have FOMO? Yeah. And I said, I don't know what that is. Thinking it was like a drink or something. Well, you also you're like the, the center of attention for everything. So how fear could you ever out. have fear of missing out? Because fear it's always of missing about you. Out. That's right. So anyway, but didn't you have fear of missing out? No, because all your mates were going, exactly. you know, out drinking and leering yeah. about, and you yeah. couldn't do any of that because you'd have been taking photographs on a mobile phone, and then you would have been on the front page of the newspaper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Well, I, I was aware of that challenge. And as I, as I said before, all my best mates were not political at all. You know, mm. And I, that was really important to me. And they all thought it was hilarious, I think, in many ways, the sort of world <laughs> that I occupied. And so, you know, I did do a lot of those sorts of things. And again, if you're kind of comfortable in your own skin, and frankly, you know, sometimes there were times where people would take a picture of you at the pub or whatever. But if, if you're in that role and you can't tell the difference between having a good time with your mates and waking up drunk in a gutter, you know, oh, yes. somewhere. No, that, th- there is there is some difference between those two. Yes, and, a- and, you know, like I have mates who were in the military, had mates that were sort of high-profile, you know, Australians at a young age. They all face similar kind of challenges in terms of having a private life and, and enjoying that. And I think no one had done it before me at that age and that young. So I kind of got to write the rule book on that. And I think I was... Yeah, if you were so worried about getting caught, about doing something very normal for somebody that age, it, it really just wasn't worth it. And you yeah. do have to make a, a judgment call that, you know, if there's one photo and someone, you know, puts it online or whatever, it, it, is the cost of that okay if that allows you to have some normality in your life? And <laughs> so, I think that that's true. So you didn't do what one of our colleagues, former colleagues did when he was at university. He used to wear a suit to university every day because he said, if I'm going to be a lawyer, 
I need to start looking like one now. <laughs> was it my approach? It, it was in the 70s, yeah. so it's not a youthful yeah. Had a safari suit or something, probably. <laughs> Could easily have been. <laughs> Could easily, I've never owned a safari suit. Yeah. I quite liked it. I don't one. believe you. I never have. Yeah. I quite liked it. Powder blue one. I'll give you a good example of, of this where I. I I used to live in Beechmill, which is a little town in, in my old electorate, and I had an IGA across the road from me. And I went across to get milk one night in my tracky dacks with no shoes on and, you know, whatever, as you would do in that environment. This is an exciting story. It's not that exciting. But, <laughs> but you know, I did this and I remember, like, just chatting to the, you know, the person at the checkout or whatever and leaving. In your tracky dacks? In my tracky dacks. But that's very normal. And I left and um, they ended up putting it online as some sort of great scandal that I went to the shops with tracky dacks and no shoes on. That's crazy. Exactly. And I remember thinking, oh, I actually don't have to worry about what other people think about all this kind no. of stuff now. So, you um, know, I don't even own a pair of thongs. I, <laughs> that's really sad. Never had a pair. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn bought me a pair of thongs years ago when she was buying thongs for the children and said, here's some thongs. I said, what am I going to do with those? What do you wear to the beach? Boat shoes. Ah. Uh, at least you're not one of those people that wear like boat shoes on a daily basis out and about. Or uh, no, I don't. Of course, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I wear boat shoes on the beach. Yep. I don't really think thongs are a shoe wear. I'm not sure what they are. I think you wear them out with them to the bathroom. I wear them every day around the hotel suite. I wear them every day. You could do that, I suppose. Uh. Slip-ons. Do you wear thongs every day? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Even sometimes. I mean, if I don't have external meetings. I've, I've got lots I, of friends I'll, who wear thongs. I'll meet them. To, I wear them to the office sometimes if I need. No, they do my, my good safety boots. You're so Queensland. <laughs> you are. So you didn't have fear of missing out because you think you didn't miss out. No, I think I, 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 you know, enjoyed that part of my life. And also, I mean, I had incredible opportunities given to me that nobody else at that age gets given to them as well. True. So I mean, that, that's a. So you're going to go back? Because um, you are still <clears throat> in a, interested in social justice and you're still good at economics and you've done well. In yeah. the private sector, in uh, artificial intelligence and innovation. I mean, you have a lot to offer. Why wouldn't you go back? Um, it's always possible. I and think. Like, I, how old are you now? Twenty six or something? Thirty. Yeah, <laughs> such a child. <laughs> um, I uh, no, no, no. I um, look. It's possible, but the truth is, you know, when when I when I lost, I had been in Parliament. One in five days, I'd been alive. It was such a big part of my life, and you know, we did really big things together. We we served in government. We did a big reform package. We changed the country for the better. Very few people get to do that in their political career. No so, doubt. you know, the idea of going back into politics and potentially being in opposition or the backbench or whatever, and all of the cost that comes with that, I think is something you'd want to think very carefully about. And I am loving my life. This is the happiest I've ever been. I'm, you know, loving being in the private sector for all the reasons that go with that and, mm. and learning a new skill set around, you know, real business and, uh, so I'm very happy doing that. But, of course, I mean, politics is in your blood and one day in the future you never know, but I'm certainly not rushing to get back there. Probably be here in New South Wales. Well, you just never know. I just, you know, so much of my life now is... Um, You're being very cagey of, about the, your future plans. <laughs> I just, think, I just feel like, politics. you know why? Because, because it's such a common question and it's You're so easy it. to give a political answer to that question where, of course, the truth is I'm interested in politics. Of course, at some point you might want to go back. But, the, you know, if I didn't, it wouldn't necessarily change my life that much. I mean, I'm I, not going back. Yeah, I think there's a second coming in here. Yeah. I'm not going back. Although, when Joe Biden got elected president of the United States, mm. I thought really I should have given myself more Matthew, runway in in Malaysia. Well, that's right. Yeah, mate, you've got plenty of time. Well, he got he got he was back in his nineties. Exactly. Yeah. 
But I'm thinking, oh, maybe I've missed my chance. But then when Biden got his go, yeah. I thought, this is fantastic. Well, he had, he, how long did you have in Parliament? 30 years? 26 20, years. 26 years. I was in Parliament more than I'd been out of it. Yeah, he's had 47. Yes. By the time I'd retired, I'd been in Parliament longer than I hadn't been in it. By, by Joe Biden's stick, you were only just getting warmed up. <laughs> That's right. I think he's <laughs> going to do right, you left, though, Biden. You left before your, you know, the big uh-huh. upswing. I think I left at the right time, though, by the way. Well, you know, Peter Costello has this saying that, well, and I think lots of people say this, right, all political careers end in tears. <laughs> and yours didn't. <laughs> Stop it. Touch wood. <laughs> Touch wood. Yes. Well, it well, ended in tears in as much as I did weep in the last seven words of my valedictory speech, mm. but I could have wept the whole way through. Let's move on from, um, from politics. I think we'll talk about something new like innovation. Good idea. You did a great job as Thank Assistant you. Minister for Innovation. Thank you. And uh, implementing the, nas- the National Innovation and Science Agenda, which we pulled together very quickly. We did. Remember. How do you think we're placed today in Australia in terms of innovation and compared to where we were five or six years ago? We, I think any what, what do you think the future is going to be? observer would say that we are in so much more of a strong position today than we were five, six years ago. Uh, and you can look at that in any measure. And really, what is this about, right? This is about creating a country that your children have more opportunity than today. You know, we've been a country that digs up things out of the ground and uh, we grow things. My family are miners and farmers. That's a great story for the country. But if we're going to continue to, you know, pass on greater prosperity, then we have to change what we do as a country. And we have to have high-paying jobs in in different industries. That's essentially what NISA and innovation was all about. And if you look at the country today, you know, if you look at just the employment figures, the hugest or the most significant growth in employment has been from high-growth tech companies. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Australians are now employed in industries that didn't exist five or six years ago. And that's because of the decisions Malcolm made, you made, I made in delivering that. Before we did NISA, less than $200 million was invested in venture capital into high-growth companies in Australia. That's less than we bet on the Melbourne Cup. We changed the tax laws around that, right? And because we changed the tax laws, there are now literally billions of dollars being invested into these companies. And these are the companies that are creating all the new jobs. Uh, and that's what liberal governments are about, creating the framework and the settings for the private sector to thrive. And that really is what NISA did. It drew in that private sector capital, billions of dollars to do that through tax incentives. Uh, we created and we helped incentivize making sure that we had the best talent. So, you know, people with great skill sets, whether they were here or, you know, coming in from overseas. And if you look at the companies that have, you know, grown in the last five, six years, you know, they have this term of unicorn, which is a company that's mm-hmm. valued over a billion dollars. Well, there was a handful of those five or six years ago. Now there's a lot. Mm. If you look at the companies that are valued at 50 million, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, which are all the companies employing hundreds and thousands of people in these industries, they've exploded in the last five or six years. So forget the politics of innovation, which I think, you know, there's a lot that with hindsight and without the rush, we would have done differently and better. Mm. But the policy success of NISA, as what we always said would be the first step, I think changed the course of the history and changed the course of our country. And today, what are we? We're a lifestyle superpower. COVID has brought that into you know sharp focus. The best and brightest people want to be here. I mean, I, I had lunch this week with somebody who is uh, the CEO of one of these unicorns that has grown in the last few years one of the most successful tech companies in Australia. He was living in the US. He's now living here. Right. Some of these other companies, you know, in the hundreds of millions, they're listing on the Australian stock exchange rather than in the US. And that growth of people, of capital, and they're all reinvesting in what we call the ecosystem, which is, you know, the next company and the mm. next job opportunities. 
is very significant here. And I think we are incredibly well placed today compared to where we were. And I think the rest of the world, I know, I don't think, you know, from traveling the world, they think about us very differently as a country. And, you know, the day-to-day politics of that might not, you know, shine a great light on that success. But I, I tell you what, when your kids are growing up in 10, 15, 20 years time in, in a completely different country, it will be because of the work Malcolm and you and I did. And I think that's a, that's what, what more do you want in your time in politics? It's such a pity that there's a dissonance between the outcomes of the policy yeah. and the impression in the media and the commentariat about innovation, yeah. which even as the minister, I, and Texter came and Mark Texter, our pollster, came and gave a presentation to us about the election and the campaign. You might remember the number one item that we were going to promote yes. was innovation. Which was a shock to me as well. Yeah, and it was a shock to me <laughs> too because like- I thought, right, because um, I'm, you know, I can sell things um, quite well, but, and, you know, I do diss the whole innovation that my lack of ability with innovation, mm. but I have to say my view was not, I didn't need to know how these things work. Yeah. My job is to get things done. Exactly. And I'm quite good at doing that. So, um, and then selling it. So I thought this is going to be interesting because unfortunately, whether it's the age demographic of a lot of the people who are the commentators around economics and business in Australia, they don't elevate that innovation story. They almost kind of diss it, Yeah, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. It's a bit of almost tall poppies in some ways as well when you say it, but, but I think... Not too cool for school, yeah, because, you know. Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, there's this saying that good policy is good politics, and I just don't believe that. I mean, like, I, I really don't. I mean, they, they are quite separate sometimes, mm. and, and there are challenges. I mean... Well, bad policy is certainly bad policy. That's definitely true. <laughs> that's definitely true. But, you know, think about the GST. I think, you know, everyone would agree that the GST is good policy, but the idea that that was good politics is, you know, history might look back at it on that way now, but I'm sure the people that lost their seats no, in 1998 don't think that. It amazes me why how many people, when they talk to me about the Howard government, yeah. say, you know, list the GST as one of the Howard government's great achievements and what an amazing thing that John Howard managed to get that through and so successfully as though we lost 16 seats in 1998. Exactly. <laughs> That's quite... And I'm thinking, hang on, we lost 16 seats. Yeah. You know, the reason it got through is because we had a massive majority and 16 people went under the chariot wheels exactly. to get the GST. Yeah. Two came back. Yeah. The others, we never saw them again. Yeah. But this is kind of the point. Um, you know, that that's there is a disconnect. And innovation, in my mind, was going to be the first big push of the Turnbull government, which it was, mm. uh, do the policy reform that was very close to Malcolm's heart. Absolutely. Did I think at any point that would be the centre stay of the 2016 election? Absolutely not. No. And I, uh, you know, and I was sort of, you know, there was such high expectations around what we were going to do. I mean, I really thought that we were going to go into the 2016 election fighting quite a different battle to the one that we were. And, you know, there's obviously lots of reasons around that. And, you know, lots of people will write history on that. But, uh, you know, as, as the architect of much of the innovation agenda, I am extremely proud of it. It's a great policy. Yes, well, you should be too. But uh, did I think that should be the centre stay of an election campaign? Probably not. So, um, how's Affinity going? It's great. I am. I am. You know, as I said, I think this is the happiest time in my life. Uh, when I lost, it was pretty unique losing when you're 25, 26, and mm. uh, had the experience that I had. And if you think about the transition from politics to business, very few people in this country do that and do that well. Mm. Where I had an opportunity to do it differently, as I did when I went into Parliament in the first place, and I wanted to make a jump as far away from government and politics as possible, 
to you know get a new skill set and uh, to do something real in the private sector. And Affinity is an incredible, you know, multi-billion-dollar global AI company, which I brought to Australia, grew the team, started as employee number one. We've now got a great team here. We've raised a lot of money. We've bought on great clients and um, built a really successful business both here and globally. And you know, I couldn't be happier doing that, which is just so different to before. And you know, also just the personal elements of work-life balance and everything that goes with, uh, of course, we're busy and we work hard now, but nothing would compare to politics. And I think that's very hard for people to understand sometimes. But um, And its offering is primarily AI, is that right? That's right. It's AI for, I think, the world's largest companies. And we use artificial intelligence to connect uh, customers with people within these large organizations based on behavior. So you will have right. a better experience. And it turns out if you have a better experience, I'm more likely to sell you something, retain you as a customer, improve revenue. So, And we can precisely measure how we do that through um, basically switching our algorithms on and off again. And so we are, we know we are creating literally billions of dollars of revenue for m- many of the largest companies around the world. That's precisely measurable, goes straight to the bottom line. Our business model is the only pay for it if uh, if that works. And the company is just full of such incredible people. I mean, you know, the founder is... It's the third multi-billion dollar company he's built from scratch. He grew up in Lahore in Pakistan. It? Yeah, it's an incredible story. And, um, you know, the, the, the board has, you know, the former CEO of Sony, the former CEO of Verizon and BP and BT. And for me to be learning a business skill set from these sorts of people, much in the same case in the parliament, I learned, uh, you know, a political skill set from, from the greats. I think um, it was, again, a really lucky opportunity for me to have. And, you know, uh, you know to your point before, why would I... Um, I'm certainly not rushing away from this life. Henry Kissinger wrote a fantastic piece for the Atlantic Monthly about artificial intelligence and the danger that it presents. Yeah. Do you think there's a there's a danger about it or a moral danger that we're not seeing already? Well, there's a totally fascinating debate playing out here where, you know, Kissinger and Elon Musk and some others on, on that side of the debate are talking about, you know, effectively it's Terminator and it's Rise of the Machines and, you mm. know, it's... Uh, uh, the world is all under a grave threat from AI, and then there's other people who think it's completely benevolent and there's nothing to worry about, and there's that spectrum. I must say I fall much more strongly on the side of, you know, AI is a force for good when you combine it with human beings to empower them to do more, to do better things and create productivity, essentially. And I think the danger with AI is people mystify it. If you actually think about what AI is, AI is simply nothing more than looking at large amounts of data, finding patterns in that data to achieve an outcome, right? right? AI is about here is something I'm trying to optimize. Here's something I'm trying to do. Here's all the data that I have. What are the patterns in that data that achieve that outcome? That is a pretty benevolent type sort of thing. And that's very different to the idea of general intelligence and you know robots taking over. And if you look at AI from a, a really practical sense, AI as software, as in as in algorithms, has essentially been around since the 80s. It's essentially the same sort of technology from a software point of view. What has changed is computational power. So how powerful is the computer that can look at all of that data and do all of those processes? And that's jumped, you know, astronomically. And, you know, we all have a supercomputer in our pockets now. So, in, you know, the jump in the software that would change the world and do all of these sorts of things, we're really actually not seeing. We're just seeing an ability to do more things more quickly and have more productivity as a result. And that's a good thing for humanity when you use it to empower human beings. So, you know, rather than doing lots of mundane tasks that require lots of um, effort and time, you can free up, a, you know, a person so that they can be focusing on the things that create real productivity. 
Uh, and I think that will, yes, change employment. And that's really important we get that right. That's what I worry about the most is where do the jobs go and where do the jobs come from? Uh, and that seems to, has to play out. But my theory on this is what we value as a society over time will start to shift. So, you know, a lot of these, frankly, white collar jobs that are highly repetitive tasks in law and, you know, other places, that value will decline. Um, but some of the other things that people do that, you know, a robot can't do or the creative industries or those sorts of things where mm -hmm. they're selling to the rest of the world, that will grow in its value. And I think there's just a bit of a recalibration that will happen over the coming decades around that. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very firmly in the, in the camp that this is a force for good and the sorts of, you know, apocalyptic visions that we have, are, uh, you know, certainly overhyped or a misunderstanding of some of the technology or decades and decades and decades into the future because of the changes that you would have to see. And, you know, I think we'll, um, we'll manage that transition. So not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Unfortunately not. <laughs> There's a bit of a red herring too that they, people raise about artificial intelligence is that how do you, they, well, they pose this question, how do you train a computer to choose between whether they, a car should run over an old lady crossing a zebra yeah. or a zebra crossing or a, a woman with a baby in a yeah. pram. Yeah. And of course, that's just ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. <laughs> well, but, you know, he, he, here's, a better, here's a better way of looking at that problem. How many human beings kill other human beings because they're driving a car today? It, it's millions globally. If you had fully autonomous cars with the technology that they have, the, the rate of accidents would drop you know, to, to, you know, less than 1% of the, the, the amount that currently um, exists today because they'd inevitably be so much more safer, so many more sensors. You know, it's like going from one pair of human eyes and all our challenges to thousands of eyes and, you know, an ability to avoid these sorts of things. But, of course, there will be the absolute fringe cases where things happen like that, and that's a challenge, and regulators need to think about that and insurance companies and others. But the death rate, which you would hope from a policy perspective is actually what you're trying to achieve, will plummet. But well, I think that they'll be much safer drivers. Absolutely. Because I've even noticed in my new car that you know, it's, it actually slows itself down. Yeah, talks and, to you. Uh, when it's in cruise control, as it gets closer to vehicles around it and it puts you back in the lane if you're starting to stray out of the lane. Exactly. And that's a great example of AI or machine learning empowering an individual to do something more productively, more safely, and I think you know, that's a really good example of what you should be looking at. And the first couple of times it happened, I thought, gosh, this is an unusual sensation, and now I'm completely used to it and think yeah. it's a terrific thing. Well, I mean, theoretically, I mean, there will be a generation very close to now who probably will never have a driver's licence. Are there governments that are doing this well or better than others? There is. I, I think uh, the governments that are succeeding in uh, promoting the right framework for innovation and also regulation around this realise that uh, you have to get these old archaic institutions, the regulators, the government, uh, into the room with the people that are creating the technology, the software companies and, and the others. And the best example of this is, you know, in the US Congress, you had a bunch of uh, senators and, and members of the House bringing uh, before them the CEOs of Facebook and Google and the others. And if anyone watches the questions of what they're putting to them, you can see that massive disconnect. Right. So bringing those, um, you know, the, the regulators, particularly the legislators, into the room with the people creating the technology means that you're creating the practical real-world environment for that and not fighting it in a way that can often be counterproductive. You know, I'll give you a great example is... Uh, I don't really remember after I became the minister, I said that we should uh, have a policy hackathon. 
Oh, so, yes, I remember the hackathon. Which, which I think I asked for forgiveness, <laughs> not permission from you <laughs> to do my... Oh, that was a new thing for me. It was a new thing. I think you called it my jamboree. The jamboree. The jamboree. I, do, I love a jamboree. And I, I, got, I got this call from you one day where you were saying... Um, and the Gymkhana. Yeah, <laughs> Gymkhana, that's right. It's Malcolm, you... Malcolm. Wyatt's having a Gymkhana. <laughs> Of course, Malcolm knew I was doing this, but I'm glad that you've been telling me. He loved the hackathon. Yeah. So anyway, you, you call me up and you say, well, I've just been driving in the car and on the radio I hear you're having your jamboree. Hackathon. Maybe you jamboree. should tell me next time, which is a good lesson in how to you know work with you. Uh, but, um, but the policy hackathon was a great example. So what was that? We basically said, here's 10 policy challenges that we've got. Here's all the people from the industry, you know, the tech experts, the people in the you know startup companies, so on and so forth. Here's the public servants. Let's put them in a room together and try and solve these policy challenges How together. Terrifying. Which was the most amazing experience both ways. Because the um, you know, you'd have the 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 people in the industry saying to the government, this is what we want, which often they actually don't hear that in the appropriate channels away, as you know, paying lobbyists or others to do this work. And then uh, on the government side, it was really powerful, I think, for them to help educate the stakeholders in the industry. And people can criticize NISA, but the one thing that NISA really had was universal support from the stakeholders. Very rare. And public support they from the stakeholders. They were enthused. They were very enthused. And part of that was because of these sorts of initiatives. So I remember there was one where, you know, people were saying, uh, in tech, we need, you know, STEM skill sets for the next generation to, to make sure that they can go into these jobs. And so they said, well, let's just change the curriculum. And, of course, a public servant sitting in the room says, well, to do that, you have to talk to a state government, you have to talk to whatever. And then they realise, okay, well, we have to work around this and, and actually create policy jointly. And that, I think, is the real challenge where you have this transformative force of the take-up of technology in a rate that human history has never seen in a very old institution of government. They have to get in the room together and that, that gives you the right outcome. Now... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wyatt. It's been great having you on Pine Time. It's been great catching up. It has been, actually. And uh, good luck with everything. Thanks, Blake. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.